Chapel, Mason City. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. I'm sorry, 11 through 22 today. There's a typo in, on the screen there. That's my fault. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. <clears throat> the beginning of this chapter, chapter 2, started with them being dead in trespasses and sins. You remember last week, Paul was telling the awful tale about what people are before Christ. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. But God didn't leave them there. And by the end of the chapter, you remember, Paul was talking about how they're saved by grace through faith, not their own works, so nobody could boast. It's all about Jesus. And that they were walking in the very works that God had predetermined for them to walk in. And what a glorious thing, starting from this before you were dead in trespasses and sins to now you're adopted into the family of God, saved by grace through faith, walking in the works that he has for you. And now in this passage, he kind of does the same thing over again. It starts in a dark place and it ends up with another but God story. And he's kind of going to repeat himself. But this time he's dealing with what God did with the Gentiles in particular in <laughs> bringing them into one body called the church with the Jews. So there's two things that we see in this passage, really. We see that Jesus is a peacemaker. Jesus made peace between sinful man and woman and God. And Jesus then also made peace between all people. In the church, there's absolute peace between all people, all races, all distinctions, all classes, all of these things, all types of distinctions are taken down or taken out of the way in the church, and all of us are one body. That's how God sees it, and that's what God did. Um, unfortunately, the church always doesn't live like that, but in this passage, we see that God, Jesus made peace between God and man, and Jesus makes peace between believers. And in this passage, particularly the Jews and the Gentiles, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Jews and Gentiles as we go through here and give you a little bit of uh, kind of some background information. So, very simply, he's going to talk to the Gentiles in the church, and he's going to tell them essentially three things. And you can see these are the outline today, what they were, what God did, and what they are now. So number one, verses 11 and 12, what they were, and here we go. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the hands by flesh, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Now, Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word today, help us, Lord, to study. Help us to worship you in the way that we study your word. Lord, I do pray against distractions, Lord. Take our thoughts, bind them to you, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us beyond the words of a man, that your Holy Spirit would give illumination to the text today, and we do ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Therefore, remember. Now, he starts this passage, therefore, remember, and so in light of everything that was said last time, remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins, God saved you by grace through faith, you're walking in the works that he's predetermined for you, therefore, remember. Now, the word remember, we should pause here just for a second. As Christians, we don't always need a new thing 
You know, that's our world today, right? If you've seen Snapchat and YouTube shorts and Instagram reels and all that stuff, our world is about something new all the time. We always want some new stuff. Oh, is that a picture of a cat swimming in a swimming pool? Oh, sweet. Oh, this one's two cats in a swimming pool. Oh my gosh, it's new. Now that's our culture today. We're just giving more new stuff. You know, and it's tragic when that idea comes into the church, when that attitude comes into the church. Because people start hopping around Bible study to Bible study, listening to podcast to podcast, and they never really arrive at the truth because they're always looking for some new truth. It's always a good thing just to remember the basics as a Christian, right? I don't know about you, but I don't need to hear some new thing. I need to be reminded of the very basic things. And one of the very basic things I need to remind myself of is what I was before Christ. What I was before Christ. Now, some of you might say, I don't know, I've been a Christian my whole life. Well, think about this then. Why don't you remember what you were before you decided to surrender to Jesus as Lord of your life, making a personal decision to do that? That's what he's starting out here saying. Therefore, remember, all these great things happened to you, last message, but you should remember where you were. Now, you see these terms here. He says, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called circumcision by what is circumcision made in the flesh by hands. We're just going to take this apart because this is wordy and kind of some of these words you might not understand what they are. So uncircumcision and circumcision, these are terms that relate to Jews and Gentiles. Now, you may have been coming here for a while and you might wonder, why, does, why do we always talk about Jews in the Christian church? Why do we always talk about Jews and we use this other word, Gentiles? Now, so for that, I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, okay? In the Garden of Eden, you go all the way back, you know, like in the movies where they do the little, you know, like, remember, so you can think of that. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve were there, and they were walking around, and they had perfect fellowship with God, but then they sinned, and sin and death came into the world, and God cursed the world, and God cursed them, and God cursed the devil. And also at that time, God said that He was going to send a deliverer through them, eventually, through the woman's seed, through the bloodline of Adam and Eve, the deliverer, the Messiah, we know who he is. We know Jesus would come. And that's all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you trace the bloodline of Adam and Eve, that's essentially what the whole Old Testament does, is it traces the bloodline from Adam and Eve to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to Jacob, to Isaac, to all of these people. And it goes all the way down tracing their bloodline. Why? Because back in Genesis 3, God said that the Messiah would come from that bloodline. So the whole Old Testament traces that bloodline. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus coming into the world and the thousands of years that it took for him to get here. Now, those people, that bloodline, were called the Jews eventually. They became the Jews or the Hebrews or the Israelites. Okay, so when we're always talking about Jews and Gentiles, it's because these were God's chosen people, and they are God's chosen people. He still has a future plan for them, and, and we're not going to talk about that here today. But God gave the Jews this promise that the Messiah would come through them. So we talk about the Jews a lot because the Old Testament is the promise of the Messiah coming through the Jews, and then the New Testament starts with Jesus coming, the Messiah coming. So then the New Testament is now Jesus has come, and 
through the rest of the New Testament is the life of Jesus, then the book of Acts is the life of the church, then the epistles are what the church should be doing, then the book of Revelation is future things, right? So I just gave you the whole Bible in a nutshell, but that's why we talk about the Jews so much. Because now understand this, the Jews being God's special people, they believed that they were the only people that God was going to ever bless and that God ever liked. It says in the book of Isaiah that God was using the Jews always to be a light and they were going to be a blessing to the whole world, but they took it as we are superior to everybody else. And so now you've got this term Jews and then you've got the term Gentile. Now what the term Gentile means is everybody that's not a Jew. And so they were nationalistic, they were prejudiced, they hated everybody that was not a Jew. And, and we're not speaking for all of them. We're just saying nationalistically, this is the way that they were. There's obviously cases in the Gospels of Jews that didn't feel like this. You know, that's, that's not the point. But overall, there was a nationalism. In fact, some of the rabbis used to say things like, you know, they des Gentiles deserve more than death. You know, uh, there was a common prayer among the rabbis that said, thank God, I thank God today that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a Gentile dog. And, and they prayed like that. That's a, there's recordings of rabbis that prayed like that, right? And so when you get to a passage like this and you see this, remember Paul is saying to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews in the church, and he's saying, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh and you were called uncircumcision by what is the circumcision. Now, the Jews in Genesis chapter 17, were given a command by God to circumcise all the males on the eighth day. Now, what circumcision is, for those of you that don't know, it means to cut off the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. Now, it, it serves a lot of purposes because, you know, every time you'd, you know, you, you think about it, this is where life comes from. And so you'd have this very vivid reminder that your life came from God and it's supposed to be cut off from the rest of the world. You're not supposed to be like sinners, right? It had a very powerful marking, uh, you know, about powerful meaning. Now, also, that marking then would distinguish them from Gentiles, right? Now, today they do it for hygienic reasons and things like that, and it's, it's proven scientifically to be a good hygienic thing or whatever. But in these days, he's saying, look, you were called the uncircumcision. Now, that was like an ethnic slur, at the time. Remember when David and Goliath, he says, well, this uncircumcised Philistine challenged, you know, Yahweh, right? He was using it as, that's, and that's how the term was used. It was an ethnic slur. There was a massive division, right? Now, that gives you a little bit of background. You know, let me, I'll just do the spoiler alert. So when Jesus created the new church that he did, which we're going to get to in this passage, the way that God related to man through his chosen people, the Jews, the point when he came was he took the Jews and the Gentiles, the blacks, the whites, the Sumerians, the Samaritans, and everybody, and anybody that would come to Christ became one new body. And so that's what Paul's saying to these Gentiles in the church. Now he's kind of, in a sense, he just got done in that last message saying all these great things about him, but he's like, don't forget though, that you used to be absolutely hated by God's people. Now, we're not saying whether the fact that the Jews hated everybody else was right or wrong. That was clearly wrong. 
And that's not the point that Paul's making here. The, Paul, the point Paul is making to these Christians in Ephesus is he's saying, you just need to remember that as far as anything to do with God had anything to do with God, you were cut off from that. You were separated and you were actually despised. They used racial ethnic slurs towards you. And remember that. You know, it's a good thing to remember. Now, how does that translate to us? Well, we need to think about what we were before we, I mean, I remember I didn't know anything about God. I felt like if I went into a church, the place would like, you know, literally eject me out, like, like the front door, like the lightning bolt would hit me before I got inside of it, you know, or like the alarm would go off, you know, the guy would be running with his robe and his little thing, like, ah, you know, get him out of here, you know, and, that, and so it's good to remember, you know, what you were, and that's what he's doing is he's taking them back to this awful division that happened between people, the years and years of God's people, right or wrong, clearly wrong, hating you. The point isn't that it was wrong. The point is, remember, you were hated and cut off from God's people. I know that's a lot. So we could just digest that for a second. (laughs) Let me read the NLT version of this to you. And now just listen carefully. They do a nice job of really getting to the meaning. With that background now, this will totally click for you, okay? So here's the NLT. It says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You, will, you were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. So see how that makes sense? Now, there's that line at the end, though, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. That's the part where it says, the circumcision was made in the flesh by hands, okay? Now, Let's go on another one, okay? This is Paul getting a little dig in, saying that most of these Jews at this time, not all, but most, circumcision was just something done by the hands. It didn't affect the heart. It's very much like saying, hey, I know that guy. He's been baptized, but he's certainly not a Christian. Same thing. Paul's getting this little dig in saying, you were called this ethnic slur by the circumcision, which actually most of the circumcision anyway, you know, at this point, it was just an outward show and it didn't even really affect their heart. He says a whole bunch of things in there, but really just the main point is remember that you were cut off from God's people. That's really the main point of it with all these other things tucked in there. Just another comment on that circumcision made, by, made in the flesh by the hands. Religious things that happen externally are meaningless if there's no change in the heart. They're just meaningless. You could have been baptized five times. Doesn't make any difference if your heart is not surrendered to Jesus as Lord. Doesn't make any difference. Same thing with circumcision. You can read about that, in fact, in Romans chapter 2, if you want to hear Paul really break it down, how circumcision is circumcision of the heart. It means, in my heart, I'm cut off from living like this sinful world. I live for Jesus. I live for Yahweh, right? Now, that's a lot. We could go home after that, right? So, first of all, they were despised and cut off from God's people. The next thing in verse 12, look at this. It says that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Now, when it says they were without Christ, so they didn't, the Gentiles didn't have any promise of a Messiah coming because that was for the Jews. The whole Old Testament from the book of Genesis on promises a Messiah, but the Gentiles didn't know anything about that. 
Now, it says that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, that's not like History Channel, ancient aliens. That's not that kind of alien. This just means someone that doesn't belong. That's what that term means. And they did not belong then to the commonwealth of Israel. Now, the commonwealth would be, you know, the common blessings, the privileges. You remember American Express membership has its privileges, right? They did not have any of the privileges of what it would be to be a Jew. They didn't have the scriptures. They couldn't go in the temple. They didn't have worship. They didn't know Yahweh, right? They didn't have this rich history of God providing for them. They were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel, and they were strangers from the covenants of promise. Now, covenants are like agreements, and all the way back even to, you know, the Garden of Eden, like I just told you, that was what they call the Adamic covenant. Through the seed, you will, uh, the Messiah will come, right? That's the Adamic covenant. Go, you know, be fruitful and multiply, and from your seed, the Messiah will come. Then there was the Noahic covenant. Remember Noah, go get your family, get into this boat, and then I won't destroy ever again by a flood. The rainbow is the sign of God's promise. He'll never destroy by a flood again. It's a covenant. Then the Abrahamic covenant, get up from your land, go into a land I will show you. I will give you a land, I'll give you a law, I'll give you people, and the Messiah will come through your line. Then the Davidic covenant, somebody on your throne will always sit. The Messiah will come on the throne of David. All these different covenants and promises throughout the thousands of years of history of God's people, they didn't have access to them. Which leads to the next point in verse 12, the end of verse 12, that they have no hope and were without God in the world. Now, on a national level, they had no guarantee their land, government, or people would endure. On a personal level, things looked grim. They had no hope beyond death. They were without God in the world, it says. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't have false gods. They worshiped Diana, remember Artemis um, from the first message? Now, many of us can relate with this today, right? Even if you grew up in church, there are many people that grew up in church that still don't have, they never had any knowledge of God's Word. They never had any assurance that comes from his promises. They never were looking forward to Jesus Christ coming back. Do you know there's a bunch of Christians even probably today, probably at least a few people that aren't today looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ? What are you looking for? <laughs> what are you looking forward to if you're not looking forward to, you know, Christ coming? And, and so many of us can relate to these Ephesians. We were in this world, but we didn't know the true and living God. We worshiped other gods. The biggest God that people worship when they don't worship Yahweh is they worship the God of self. In fact, there's a magazine about it at the store. It's called Self. <laughs> you ever seen that magazine? It's all about you. People worship the God of self when they don't worship Yahweh. You know how you know that? If we took a picture in here today and of everybody and we put it on the wall and said, hey, there's a picture of last week, who's the first person you'd look for? <laughs> i got to make sure am I, am I how, oh my gosh, I can't believe they took it. <laughs> Even God's people have a tendency to go back to that, don't they? That was the state, that was the bad state of the Gentiles in the church, and it's really our story too. So Paul says, therefore, remember... All these great things have been going in your life, you know, and you're, you're realizing, you're understanding justification by grace through faith. You're understanding that God loves you as you are and he gives you the gift of salvation. That's good. But always keep in your mind, it's good to remember what you were because it causes you to be so thankful for what you are now. It really does. 
I'll tell you today, if you've lost gratitude in your life and hope and a good, pleasant attitude, you're just not pleasant to be around, maybe it would be good to just sit and meditate on what you were before Christ got a hold of your life. Maybe you'll find that you're not living too far from that again and that you need to repent and that you need to be grateful and you need to walk as Jesus has called you to walk. That's a very good thing for a Christian to remember who they were before because he's been so good to us. You know, since moving back from California, I never, I never cease to be amazed at God's beauty, especially in the way that he's made stars, right? Um, Erin used to think I was a weirdo when we were dating. <laughs> well, she, I'm sure she still does. But, uh, you know, I'd, we'd go and we'd be outside and we'd be walking around by the lake or something. Ooh, and I'd just be like, whoa, you know, like, I just can't get enough of it, you know? One day I was back floating in my pool in Encino in my apartment complex. And I got really excited because through the smog and through the light pollution, I think I was able to make out a star. And I was like, whoa, man, you know, you're back floating. You can't hear anything. It's like, you get that, you know, whoa, there's a star. You know, it's shocking to me. Why do the stars shine so brightly here? It's because the beautiful black backdrop And I believe that's what Paul has done for us, is he's laid this black backdrop of what we were before Christ. And now the what God has done section of our message will just shine all that much brighter, right? It's a good thing to remember. Verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity." But God, it starts with, that tragic place of no hope, and then here are the two most hopeful words in the Bible, but God, you were this, but God did this. You who were far from God are now reconciled to him. You're brought into a close personal fellowship with him, and you're brought into the church with all the other believers, with all the other family of God. And look at the price that it took. Notice the price, the blood of Christ That is the price that God paid to bring you into a relationship with him, the shed blood of his own son. It's interesting, the billionaire J. Paul Getty, you guys ever hear of this guy in the 1970s? J. Paul Getty refused to pay a $17 million ransom for his kidnapped grandson. When the teenager's severed ear arrived in a box, he agreed to pay $3 million. But he only turned up, it turned out that he paid $2.2 million, and then he gave the $800,000 to his son as a loan at 4% interest for the rest. Now, this is a guy that had a hard time paying a monetary value for a ransom. So unlike God, who is willing to pay with his son's blood for your ransom. When you make a choice to put your faith in Jesus Christ, his death 
that paid the penalty of sin is applied to your life. The blood of Christ draws you near. We were just singing that song, beautiful Savior, you've drawn me near. This is exactly what he's talking about. Your blood has drawn us near. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus abolished the wall of separation between us and God and Jews and Gentiles. Now, in verses 14 and 15, this has to do with Jesus removing what separated us from God and what separated the Jews from the Gentiles. It says, for he himself is our peace. Now, emphatic there is the word he. And it's not that Jesus brings peace. It's not that Jesus, you know, causes peace. It's that Jesus himself is peace. If you take Jesus out of the way, man and women, you and me, we have no peace with God. He is the peace. If you remove him, you're under the wrath of God. I'm under the wrath of God because of my sin. But with Jesus there, we're in Christ. We're loved just like his son is loved. You know, God loves us like he loves his son because we're in Christ. He's the key component of the whole thing. Now, he's also the key component in the peace between Jews and Gentiles because Jews and Gentiles both come together in Christ to be the one body that's the church. And that's what he's getting at. Notice what he says here, having broken down the middle wall of separation. So this is saying that Christ's work on the cross, it unifies all believers and it takes all walls down between all believers. The wall of separation, it's funny. My wife sometimes kicks her legs all night while she's sleeping. It's really pleasant. And, uh, you know, you catch a few to the shins and stomach sometimes. How did you do that? So what I'll do is I'll take the pillow and I'll make pillows and I'll make a wall of separation. The blood of Christ even takes that wall down. We're even unified beyond that, you know. Verse 15 says that Jesus has abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is another way of saying hostility, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. Now this, I understand this is really heady stuff. This is theologically rich words here, but it's a very simple concept, okay? Where it says Jesus having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, And then it goes on to say, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. First of all, what is the law of commandments contained in ordinances? It's the whole Old Testament law, which is summarized by the Ten Commandments, okay? Now, why would that be described as something that brings hostility? You should remember this from Colossians. The law of God in the Old Testament, it brings hostility in this sense, The law of God points out that you and I are sinners and that we can't keep God's laws perfectly. Therefore, we are deserving of the penalty of death. So the law points that out. That's what he means by hostility. So Jesus, when Jesus went to the cross, all of the commandments of the Old Testament were fulfilled perfectly in the life of Jesus. So in a sense, he did them on our behalf. His death on the cross paid the penalty that the whole Old Testament law said that we deserve. 
In other words, we did the crime, he did the time. <laughs> the time in this case was he died the death penalty that you and I deserved. And so that's what this is saying. Look at it again. He himself, uh, it goes on, sorry, verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. In other words, Jesus took away the hostility between God the Father and sinners because on the cross he paid the penalty of sin by his own blood. So we get to go free because Jesus paid the penalty. That's what he's saying there. Now, this also created hostility, not only between God and man, but also between Jews and Gentiles. You see, because all of the ordinances, the dietary laws, the festivals, the Sabbaths, the holidays, all of that stuff, Gentiles didn't keep those things. And therefore, the Jews looked at them and called them dogs, called them uncircumcised, and hated them because they thought, you guys don't keep God's laws. So when Jesus comes and in his life fulfills all of the Old Testament law, he's the fulfillment of all the feasts, all the festivals, all the things. And when he comes and he fulfills all those things, dies in the place of sinners, that whole law then has been fulfilled. It has been, as the words are used here, having abolished. It's taken out of the way. That Old Testament law is taken out of the way. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled all of it. And so what Paul is saying there is there's no more hostility between God and you. You know, in other words, God's not going to judge you for your sin because he judged Jesus. And there's no hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It's a really good thing because a lot of people don't realize that without Christ that they're not at peace with God. They don't really get that. I used to listen to this one band and, and one of their songs said, I ain't got no quarrels with God. Yeah, you might not have any problems with God. By the way, that singer went and died, you know, a terrible heroin overdose and lived a debaucherous life. And so it's not really clear where he was at with God, but he says he ain't got no quarrels with God. But I'll tell you, the key issue is not whether you have quarrels with God. The key issue is whether God has a quarrel with you. You can think you're at peace with God all day long. Oh, I'm, I'm good with the man upstairs. Oh yeah, but is he good with you? Because unless you have been forgiven of your sin and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God's got a big problem with you. He still sees you as dead in your trespasses and sins. But if you come to Christ and you receive what he did on the cross, now God just sees Christ when he looks at you. It's that simple. It doesn't matter whether I have peace with God or not. It matters whether God has peace with me. And he does through Christ. That's what he's getting at there. Now, he goes into verse 15, goes on, and he says, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. What he's saying there is God took Jews and Gentiles and everybody, and he put them all together in one, and he created this new thing called the church. You ever heard somebody say, well, he's a Jewish Christian? That term doesn't actually even make sense, you know? Uh, you know, I've, sometimes you'll say, you'll hear people say that, oh, I'm a Jewish Christian. In the church, distinctions don't really matter, you know what I mean? Uh, Everything's been torn down. We are the church. It's a new thing. That's what he says there. One man, one body. Now, with Jesus taking all these walls down, it's pretty sad when man puts them back up, isn't it? You know, and man has a way of doing that. You know? I don't think Jesus would be pleased probably with some of the divisions that he sees in the church today, considering what he did to <laughs> take all the walls down. Right. Now, moving on, verse 16, this is another thing God did. He <laughs> reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God through the cross. Verse 17 says, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. 
For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. So he came and he preached peace. Jesus came and preached the gospel to those who were afar off and those who were near. Who are those who were afar off in this context? Gentiles, great. And those who were near in this context were the Jews, right? And so what Paul is saying is, Jesus came and preached the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. He's saying there's only one way to be saved, and it's through Jesus. And this is actually where Jesus gets really offensive, because Jesus says there's only one way to be saved. It's just through him. And so he came and he preached peace. He took the initiative and he brought the gospel to people. He came to offer salvation. And I love verse 18. It says, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. In that we see the Trinity, right? We see that through him, Jesus, we both have access by one Holy Spirit to the Father. Now, what that is saying is Jews and Gentiles, everybody alike, rich, poor, black, white, Mexican, Chinese, everybody, all people through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, have access, have direct access to God. That's a really beautiful thing, that we can go directly into the throne room of God and have an audience with him. Reminds me of a story I was reading the other day about a janitor. Uh, he comes into the room of a board meeting in this company, and uh, all the suits are there, and everybody's having their meeting. And here comes the janitor, and he's holding a little girl. And he goes up to the CEO, and they walk over to the corner and talk, and the CEO reaches in his you know, expensive suit pocket, and he grabs out a piece of candy, and he gives it to the little girl. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, guy leaves and comes back to the table and they're like, well, what was all that about? He's like, that was my granddaughter. <laughs> you see, she had direct access to the most important person. See, you have direct access to the most important person. Verse 19 through 22, this is our last section, and this is what all believers are now. Jews and Gentiles are one as the church. Verse 19, now therefore, here we go. In light of all this, what you were, now what God has done, He brought you near through His blood. He took, fulfilled the law, the Old Testament law. He put you into one body, one new man. You, he's given you direct access. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Verse 19 says, All believers are now fellow citizens and members of God's household. That's a really good thing today. I'm really rejoicing in the fact that I'm, I live in Mason City, I live in the United States, but I'm a citizen of heaven. Right? I have a different way to live. I don't have to live like people that don't know God. I have a different way to live. And along with that citizenship in heaven comes the responsibility of being a family member. You know? And what we do as family members is we tell people about Jesus. We, we tell people about what he came to do. We do it in our work, in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our city. All believers are now fellow citizens. Now, verse 20 says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's talking about the church, and he's using metaphoric language like building a building. And he's saying the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles that Jesus was first with, they taught people about Jesus. Therefore, the church is built on them. Now, this is important to understand also, too, 
that a foundation is laid once for something. The Bible's clear that the foundation of the church was laid with these apostles on this teaching. That's really important because there have been people that have come along that said they've received new revelations from God and their books need to be read. Like Joseph Smith will tell you that and, you know, the Watchtower Society. And these different people will come in and say, um, you know, that foundation wasn't complete, you know, He's come in and given me something that nobody else has. Well, the Bible's clear that the foundation was laid once and for all on the apostles. They built it. Jesus Christ, it says, himself being the cornerstone. Now, I brought a couple of pictures of cornerstones because this is kind of interesting. There's a couple of different takes on this that scholars have. Some, this is the one that I think is accurate. <clears throat> I guess when you make a building, you know, um, they lay a cornerstone like this that the walls are all connected to. It's the one stone that joins like the whole property together, the whole building together. And this is the picture of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He's the part that holds the whole church together. It's kind of an interesting picture. There's another one too. Uh, some scholars believe it's this, the capstone. You see how that stone in the middle, what would happen if you took that out of there, right? The uh, whole thing falls apart, right? Of course. That's about like the kind of house I could build. I mean, if anybody, you know, there's my architecture skills right there. Uh, so either way, I think the first one is the accurate picture, you know, according to the time where this was written. But Jesus Christ is the center. He is the, the crux of everything that's happening. Psalm 18, 118 verse 22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has been the, become the chief cornerstone. Uh, what that means was the, the builders, the Jews, they rejected Jesus, but they figured out later that he was the key piece. You know, you tried to put the whole building together and you get down to the end and you're like, there's one piece missing. Has anybody ever bought Ikea furniture? <laughs> it's kind of like that. You get the whole thing together and you're like, what the heck? There's one piece missing. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the Jews. You know, they're trying to build this whole religious thing. And they get to the whole thing, and there's a piece missing. It's Jesus, and it's still missing for them today. There's still a blinder over their eyes today, right? They don't understand their Messiah's come. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Verse 21 and 22 then, In Christ, all believers are joined together as they grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's talking about the church. In the book of Peter, he talks about how we are living stones. So you can think of yourself like that as like a living stone in a temple, like we saw that picture of that building. We are the stones that build up the church, Jesus being the cornerstone. But we're not like these dead, stagnant stones. We're living stones. We're growing. We're being built. We're being edified. We're becoming more Christ-like. So it's like not an organization. It's an organism. The church. It's a living, breathing thing with Jesus as the head and we're his body. And it's kind of a beautiful picture there, isn't it? And it says, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. A temple is the place where the Lord's presence dwells. Do you know that when we're here together, that the Lord's presence is dwelling here among us in a special way when we're together as the church? That's a beautiful thing. And verse 22 says, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What a great place. You and I were taken from that place of separation from God. Our sins are what separated us from Him. And we were brought near to Him through the blood of Jesus, through that great price that He paid. The law condemned us to death, 
has been taken out of the way, fulfilled. It's penalty for sinners taken out of the way, paid in full. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished? He was talking about that whole thing. He took the whole law, that which separated us from God, the laws that we couldn't fulfill, the laws that separated us from the Jews, all of this stuff, it's all gone, taken in him. You're a citizen of heaven, adopted into a special family. In conclusion, I just want to bring us back to the beginning. He died on the cross to make us right with God and to make us family with all other believers. So we should always remember how much it costs Jesus to forgive us. And all that believers, uh, no matter who they are, are part of his family. And so that's where I would like us to end up is, therefore, you remember. And maybe you can think of a time, you can just kind of think about your week that's coming, and maybe you can think about a place where it would be good for you to stop and remember that great price that Jesus paid to be with you. Maybe it's when you go clock into your job and you sit down and you say, oh God. (laughs) Maybe that's a good time to just stop and remember who you are, who God is, and what he paid to be with you, how important you are to him. Maybe it's when you're tending to your kids this week. Maybe you can picture this week there's some situations that you're going to need to be taking care of kids and it's going to be challenging and difficult. Maybe it's a good time to stop and remember the great price that Jesus paid for you. Maybe something this week is going to come and tempt you to despair or get frustrated. It's probably a good time to stop and remember. Therefore, remember the great price that Jesus has paid for you. Take a moment and remember that often. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word here today. And we do pray that by the power of your spirit, we know that life is overwhelming and difficult and incredibly difficult at times. And in those times, we pray that you would cause us to remember. And Lord, we also know that there are times when things are just going so well, which are almost more dangerous because we're tempted to forget you. In those times, would your spirit cause us to remember. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.